If you have your Bibles, open them to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in chapter 5. And as we get ready and start that, I do want to again announce that what we are going to be doing for uh, our prayer gatherings as well as for our communion services is going to be once a month on a Sunday evening. We are going to gather together and we are going to have a potluck communion prayer feast. Last week I was talking about how this community living and the idea of being together has so been neglected in our society. We talked about how in the 1950s homes averaged about a thousand square feet and also averaged about eight people per home and now they have doubled in size as far as the home being 2,000 square feet, but half as many people in our society seems to be more and more distant from getting together. We talked about how the, the Lord's table, as it's talked about in Corinthians, you know, it says, as the Lord broke bread, gave thanks, said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There's a small verse that we always miss, and it says, after they had supper. In other words, the Lord's table included supper. One commentator says there's no more supper with the Lord's supper. It's just you get the cracker, you get the juice, and then that's it. But there was supposed to be this community, this fellowship that took place between people that was a part of the Lord's table. And we want to Continue that and do that on Sunday nights once a month. And so you're invited to come eat with us as well as remember the Lord's offering for us as well as bring up our prayer and offering to the Lord. Now I got to say last, I forget it was two weeks ago when we did this, there was so much food, good food, but everyone brought something and we had Everyone brought enough for like three people, and so we had food for 50 people, but there was only about 15 of us, okay, which isn't bad, depends on where you're at, but I encourage you guys to be a part of that. I'd love to see this develop into a true community where we gather together, where we together collectively enjoy not only each other's company, but remember that it is Christ who has brought us together and made us one that is part of what the the Lord's table is supposed to be. So that's going to be taking place on the 7th of August. Okay, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Well, we're going to continue our, our journey. We've been kind of following Solomon, and he's taken, on a, taken us on a, a dismal journey in search for meaning. We've talked about you got to be careful when a book starts off and says meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. You know you're in for a ride. You know that this is going to be an emotional book, and it has been. Solomon has taken us on this journey as he's tried to experience meaning through wealth, power, fame, pleasure, all these things, trying to find out something that will satisfy us. He's had this kind of just dismal attitude and fatalistic attitude that says, there's nothing new under the sun. And we saw that, in fact, God is doing something new, that he introduced a new covenant and he makes all things new. But if you're blind to what God is doing, then it indeed is meaningless. 
But if you have eyes to see, God is actually doing something new that we can be a part of. And last week, Solomon talked about how more of an intimate area. He took us from this search of meaning how it is important to have other people in our lives. He said that two are better than one, and we went through those scriptures. But also in that whole discourse that he talked about, he says that better is one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil. And so even though two are better than one, one's a lot easier. And that's where we talked about how we have become very complacent towards dealing with other people. We want our seclusion. We want our privacy. We build our walls, and we don't recognize that we were built for community and that we need one another, that the description that we are given of the church is the body where we are all joined together, that when one member suffers, we all suffer. But now he's going to move from this place of intimacy dealing with one another to actually dealing with our relationship with God. And the interesting thing is he's dealing really with his relationship to God, which is important because Solomon isn't going to tell us how to have a meaningful relationship with God, figures, but he's going to tell us how we can have a meaningless one which still can be helpful because you can reverse it and see, well, if that's a meaningless relationship, if I don't do those things, it can lead to a meaningful one. And so Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, let's read together. It says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. Solomon starts off and he talks about, guard your steps when you go into the house of God, and If anyone would know about the house of God, it would be Solomon. He's the one who built the temple, but how did he get there? How did Solomon get to this place where he was the one who built the temple? Because I think that has a lot to do with where we see Solomon at right here. You see, Israel was never meant to have a king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel talks to the nation. He goes, you guys, you really want a king? He's going to take your money. He's going to end up taking some of your crops. He's going to take a lot of your stuff. Do you really want a king? They said, yeah, all the other nations have a king. We want a king. And so it was never God's intention for them to have a king. God wanted to basically be king over them, but they struggled. 
They went through what we're going through with Michael's taking us through on Thursday nights, the judges, and had different leaders in different places, but they wanted what the other nations had. They wanted someone to lead them. And so they had brought a King Saul. Saul was the first king. And after Saul came David, who was the best or greatest king. David is the one who brought Israel to its zenith, united the tribes so that they were all under one nation. And David wanted to build a temple, but he couldn't. God says, you, you can't build a house for me. You're a man of blood, which is interesting. It, it gives us insight into who God is. And so that responsibility was passed down to Solomon. And, and so the desire of David was then given to Solomon. You see... Obligation came to Solomon. This wasn't born out of him, but was kind of laid on him. And I wonder how many of us are, are like Solomon in this way, you know, where spiritual life is born not out of passion, but obligation. And we've talked about how throughout this book, the word for God that Solomon uses is the word Elohim. It's not the personal God, Jehovah, or Yahweh that the nation came to know. It was that God creator, but it was distant. And we see that Solomon comes into this place, falls into this place of responsibility. Not only is the kingdom laid upon me, but my father, David, who was known as a man after God's own heart. The momentum of David's relationship with God has now fallen on me, and I have to build the temple, and I have to follow in his footsteps. And so what everyone thought of David, now they're going to expect of me. And that's a burden that he had to bear. And I think a lot of us maybe fall into those shoes as well. I, I think about those kids, I think about my own kids. You know, with myself being involved with ministry, being a, a pastor, and people seeing me and then seeing my kids and expecting of my kids the things that they see in me. And what happens is Solomon not only sees the responsibility, but what he does see is the deficiency. He sees all the, the shortcomings. And I think of throughout the years, the, the conversations that I've had with my own children just about this idea of church and what it is and this living a life after Christ and them seeing from the inside all the shortcomings of the people, the shortcomings of myself, my wife. And so they hear what's supposed to be, but they see what is. And sometimes there can be a distance between the two. And so Solomon is going to give us insight into that gap, into that distance that, between what should be and what really is. Because there's an environment that can be just a pressure and responsibility and a burden laid on people because they grow up, quote, in church. They grow up in this community and they have the responsibility laid on them, but it is not something that is in them. And so we find Solomon here in this place. And basically what he's saying when he talks to them and he tells them to guard their steps when they go in the house, 
Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know the wrong that they are doing. He's telling them, don't perform. Solomon has a a perfect example of, of a person who knows exactly what to do but still did not do it. He saw all the things that were wrong. He knew what was right, but he just was not living it as we've been seeing. And and so here's this dichotomy of a person who knows what's right. He saw through the foolishness of religion that has no change in a person's life. You know, you play religion with one hand and then you hide your life with the other. So people see one thing, but you are something else. And instead of having a posture towards God that is one where you're listening, you're actually playing games. You go to church. Maybe you go to confession. You do your prayers. You you perform for God. And and we even have words for this idea of performance. It's penance. You you do what you're supposed to for God. You you give what you're supposed to for God. I, I had a conversation with someone and they were saying, well, you know, I'm not a good Christian because I don't go to church and I don't read my Bible all the time. And I had to stop them and I had to say, wait a second. Who told you that that was what it was to be a good Christian? Who put that on you, that this is what it is to be a good Christian? Because you could do those things and be a good Pharisee. You see, it's not about what things you do. It's about who you are. I never remember hearing Jesus say, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you go to church and if you read your Bibles. Then will all men know that you are my followers. No. He said by this, by your love towards one another. And we've talked how love cannot be manufactured. Love is a choice that we make. And so what Solomon is pushing us to here is getting us to a place that it's not about your performance, but it's about your attention. He says, go near and listen rather than offer sacrifice of fools. Listen. What is God saying? Be attentive to Him. It's about posturing your ears, your heart, your life towards God so that He can be the reality in your life. Don't perform for God. And we all perform, don't we? I mean, in every aspect of business we perform. If any of you are dating you know that first date is the big performance. You go there and you want her to think that you're someone else. Because you know if she knows who you really are, you don't stand a chance. And so you put the performance on of your life. Oh man, yes, all I care about is you. I'm a selfless person. And and it's not only that dating, you know, the dating moves to a place where you can finally be comfortable with one another and then you get married and then you get to be who you really are. And you guys all know that's true. All those of you married, it's like, you deceived me. 
But we do that at work as well. And it doesn't matter if you're a salesperson or accountant, you have to give account for those things. You have to put on a performance so that they will accept you. And, and this idea of performance has become so part of our lives that we transfer that into our relationship with God. And so we, we put on a performance for God. Okay, I'm going to appease God. I'm going to go to church and then God will get off my back. God will leave me alone. Or we think, oh, the reason things are going wrong in my life is because I'm not doing these things. If I would only do these things, then God will give me those things. And we have this idea of, you know, I just got to do the right things so that God will give me the right things. And it's this performance base. And Solomon's saying, quit performing. Listen. And don't perform the sacrifice of fools. He's got away with words, doesn't he? Don't pull any punches, Solomon. You're going to offer your stuff to God and you're just being a fool. You think that God cares about your stuff. You think there's anything you can do that is good enough for God. You think it's really about the rituals. You think it's really about this religious game that you're playing. And that's exactly what you're doing is you're playing a game with God thinking if I do this, God will be okay. People will be happy with me. I'll get my mom, my dad off my back. They'll leave me alone. They'll think I'm okay. And this whole idea of coming to listen, I think it's foreign to us. Even prayer. You know, the idea of prayer is I go, I give my request to God, I tell him what I need, and then he gives it to me. And then I can go on my way. But the idea of going to God and just listening so that God can tell me what he desires of my life, that prayer is more than just one-way conversation, that it can actually be a two-way dialogue, that he can be a reality in my life. Is that taking place or, again, is it just one way? He goes on and he says, who do not know that they do wrong. I find this amazing because I've seen it in my own life and I've seen it in people's lives that I talk to. You know, it's remarkable how we can ignore the bits of our life that aren't right. But we can focus on all the things that are right. And so we can, you know talk about all the things that we do that are good. And we want people to see all the things that are good in our lives, but we just kind of ignore the coveting. We kind of put under the rug the envying and the jealousy, the hatred that we have, the, the bitterness that we harbor. Those things just kind of get put aside. Those things that are wrong in our life, we just kind of cover them up. And people will talk to me and they'll say, yeah, I'm just struggling in my life and I don't know what, you know, why things are so difficult. I don't know why God seems so distant from me. And you basically start digging into their lives a little bit and you find out, well, you know, there's really no dynamic relationship there. And you've got these things going on in your life and you've got these things happening. And people, whenever someone comes up and they're saying, well, I really want to be discipled. 
I really want to be discipled. You know, it sounds so good, but really what I feel like saying is, what sin in your life are you trying to get rid of? What, what, what is it that's going on in your life that is stopping you? Because that whole idea, well, I need to be discipled, I, I think, what, what is there? It's not a secret. Do what it says. Listen. And you're discipled. Do you need, here, want me to read it to you? Or do you want to read it yourself? I mean, I, it's, it sounds silly, but there's this frustration that comes over me when I start talking to someone and, I, okay, I'm, I'm going to help this person learn about God because that's what discipling means, to, to be a learner. And so you start talking to someone and you journey with them. I mean, you take them with you. You go places with them. You take them to Mexico. You, you know, involve yourself in their lives. You get them to start serving and being part. And then you see their life just kind of still twisted and messy and doing their own thing and just involved with stuff they shouldn't do. And you say, what's going on? Why isn't discipleship taking? Well, it's not really about you. It's about them listening. It's about them offering the sacrifice of fools and sometimes all those things that they do are just offerings of fools because they're not listening. There's no real dynamic in relationship that's taking place with God. And Solomon's saying, that's foolish. It's foolish. You're offering a sacrifice of fools. That, that means nothing. Verse 2, he talks about do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of the fool when there are many words. We, we give our words away, but they're not connected to our lives. We, we don't really mean what we say. And he's telling us, don't say things if you're not willing to live them. How many girls have heard a guy say, I love you, and then found out that it wasn't true. How many of us have said, I love God, but our words betray us because of how we live? Don't say things you don't mean. It would be better to be honest than to be deceptive. You know, I think about every now and then I'll see someone who has a tattoo and it might say believe or faith or grace or salvation or have a scripture. And if you have a tattoo like that, I'm not putting you down, okay? I'm just, every now and then I see that and I, I, I see the person's life and I see the ink and I see the person's life and I see the ink and I'm like, these two aren't jiving, but you know, it's like, well, I've got it permanently inked on my skin, but it's not engraved in your heart. It doesn't do anything to be on your skin. It doesn't do anything to say the words if it's not connected to your life. It's hypocrisy. You're acting. You're, you're playing a game. And Solomon, in his condition, growing up under King David, seeing all the mess that David had in his life, even though he was a man after God's own heart, he had issues as we all do. And Solomon was able to see this gap, this space between the reality of a relationship and the, the verbalization that pretends to have one. 
And he's saying, don't be a fool. You have to be genuine. I've sat down with people and had conversations with them, and I had people say, you know, yeah, I came to church, and I just wanted to give God a try. I'm, I'm willing to give this a try, and I just feel like, I can't do anything for you. And sometimes people are like, hey, man, you know, pray with them. Close the deal. But you see, I, I can't do anything in that regard. You know, Jesus isn't a vacuum cleaner that you're buying. And you're going to find out if it sucks or not. You know, this is, you've got to. <laughs> that worked out good, huh? <laughs> this isn't something you just try. And unless your life wants this, unless your heart says, I need salvation. I need forgiveness. I need help with who I am. I need someone to rescue me. Then there, there's nothing I can do. I can try and sell it to you. It's not about that. It's about us recognizing this and us really desiring this and us wanting to move in that direction. And, and that's why so many times it is in those times of life where Things are difficult, and I think of the Coda family and what they're going through and how this is bringing to bear just the frailty of life and how desperate we are in need for God because our lives are a vapor, as James tells us and as even Solomon has declared. And we realize that when the, the hammer falls and when there's the mess of life, then we realize, you know what? I really do need God. And I know some of you have hit that wall and have taken that fall and are in that place where you say, you know, God is right. God's right. And maybe the reality of I, I've been playing a game is coming to bear and you, you just don't want to play that anymore. And that's what Solomon is saying. He's saying, don't, don't offer a bunch of words. Don't do the ritualistic thing. It would be better for you to admit the truth. I'm just not interested in it. I'm just not, I don't, you know, I don't really want to follow Jesus. I still want to do my own thing. It would be better to do that than to put on a facade and think it's okay. There's more integrity in being truthful than trying to cover it up and, and play the game. And so, you know, otherwise you end up just performing for your parents, you perform for the people around you so they'll get off your back. You do your time so that you can do what you want, but there's no holy of holies in your heart. And God is distant. In verse 4 he goes on and he says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. He keeps saying that. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not to fulfill it. We talked about that Thursday night when Michael was talking about Jephthah in chapter 11. Was it chapter 11? How Jephthah made a vow to God, but God didn't ask for a vow. And it would have been better if he made no vow at all. He actually came up short, making a vow to God that God didn't require. And we do that. Well, I'm going to, oh God, I'll, I'll never, you know, I'll never drink again. Just don't let the cop 
pull me over, you know, just whatever those things. Oh, God, I'll never, I'll never do this again. And we're just pleading these things. And Solomon's saying, you're offering a sacrifice of a fool. If you're going to say something, mean it. Don't be disingenuous with what you're saying, especially to God. It just doesn't resonate well. And we need to recognize these things that God really cares about the truth of who we are. I think of Luke 18 and the, the tax collector and the Pharisee, and they both went into the temple, and they both stood there before God, and the tax collector, it says that he beat on his breast, and he couldn't even look up, and he said, Oh God, forgive me a sinner. Have mercy on me. And there was the Pharisee, he said, I'm glad I'm not like that tax collector, God. I do all this stuff. I perform. I give of my money. I give my prayers. I do the stuff. I do the penance. I do the performance. And Jesus said that the tax collector went away justified. In other words, his relationship with God was good. And this person wasn't. Think about that. Why? Because this one was genuine. He didn't offer a sacrifice of a fool. He recognized the truth of who he was, and he was honest before God with what he was. And Jesus says, I like that. I will take that. And the Pharisee was playing the game, and he wouldn't receive him. Turn with me to Acts chapter 5. There's another passage where we see this played out. It's something that you guys, I'm sure, are familiar with. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. As the church is starting out, we get an insight into these two people, Ananias and Sapphira. It says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Someone had just done that, and everyone was just grateful that this person had sold their property and given it to the poor. So Ananias and Sapphira did that. They also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart so that you lie to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Notice this verse, because it's important. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. The question is, what made you think of doing such a thing? And we can answer that one. Well, I wanted people to think good of me. Other guy sold his land. Everyone thought good of him. I thought I'd sell the land and say I gave it all and people would think good of me. And you see, the problem wasn't that he kept some of it. The problem is that he wanted people to think he gave all of it. Verse 5, it says, When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Yep. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Yep. That would happen. Verse 6, Then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, 
is this the price you and Ananias prayed for the land? Can you imagine the people around there saying, oh man, don't do it. Don't do it. Yes, she said. (laughs) Imagine everyone, oh no. That is the price, Peter said to her. How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And here's the most under-emphasized verse. This is like the obvious verse in the scripture. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events, of course. What's going on here? As God is establishing this, this new work, what is he trying to say? And why is he making it so profoundly stated? He's saying, I'm not playing games. This is all about being real with me. This is about being genuine. Was God interested in the money? He said, no, it was yours. This isn't about the money. This is about the heart. This is about the perception we want from people and about who we really are. And Solomon is saying, don't offer a sacrifice of fools. Don't make a vow to God and don't keep it. It would be better if you made no vow at all. You see, Ananias, Sapphira, it would have been better if you just kept all the money and said, yeah, we sold our land and we got a lot of profit for it and we kept it and we're going on vacation. It would have been better if they did that than to say, hey, we gave it all and then they lied. See, it's the same thing that Solomon is getting at. He's saying, don't say one thing and live another. You need to be who you are, thinking that God doesn't know what you're doing. You know, a lot of times we we think sin is just doing the wrong things, but James tells us that he that knows to do good but doesn't do it, to him it is sin. And sometimes the sin is what we are failing to do, the life we are failing to step into or admit. And Solomon was wanting to get to the reality of who we are You know, so many times we can live on the momentum of the past, the things that God has done in our life in the past. Maybe Solomon was living on the momentum of his dad, David, the king. And it's like, oh, I remember when God did this in my life, and I remember when God did that in my life, and oh, God did this, but what is he doing now? What is the reality of what's happening with you right now? Because that's really what's important. Where, where are you? Who are you? And you don't have to come to me and, and pretend to be something or your mom or your dad. Or, you, you don't have to pretend or maybe you feel you do because, you know, if I pretend, then they give me more freedom and they give me this kind of ability to text at church. Um, <laughs> It just allows me this advantage. But Solomon is saying, you know, you can't live like that. You can't pretend. You can't perform. You have to be honest. 
one of the things that I've enjoyed so much with our young adult study is there is this raw honesty that comes out at times that I can appreciate when we have people who, who don't have faith in Christ who come and ask honest questions. And there's the freedom to be there and ask those questions. And I respect a person who says, I don't believe, and what about this? I love that. I don't have to pretend to be with the group. But in my heart, I'm just struggling. I don't know. I, I, I have this stark past in my life. I have this secret. Did you guys ever have brothers or sisters where you would have to like share things like Coke? I know you guys, the new generation doesn't have to share. There was a time you had to share a Coke. You didn't get the big gulp or you, you know, you think there's free refills and everything. It wasn't that way. There was a time when you had a can and it was, you know, the real thing and you would get a can and you'd have to split the can of Coke. And if you had an older sibling like I did, you had to be on guard. Because you know that they were crafty in how they shared. You know, they'd get the small glass that was really wide. And they would just put a little bit in it. And then they'd get this tall, skinny glass. And they'd say, see, this one has more. And they'd be like, wait a second. But if you were to take the two, you'd realize the, the wide, you know, scotch glass or whatever it was actually had more. And so you would say, no, I want, I want the same glasses. I want the same. And they'd pour them both in, and you'd look, and you'd put them right next to each other, and you'd wait for them to settle. And you'd look up on top to make sure everything was okay, that the glasses were the same thickness. And, you know, it's the parent's rule. It's like, okay, you share the soda. One of you pours, the other makes the decision, right? That's the equaling force. So whoever pours doesn't make the decision. The one who's choosing does. So your brother pours the glasses and you're looking, and, ah, he's trying to be fair. Okay, yeah, they're, they're even. So you go, I want this one. He goes, yeah, you sure? He goes, yeah. You really sure? You want that one? Yeah. <laughs> and so you, you take the glass and he goes, okay, that one's yours. And then he has in the soda can more soda that he didn't tell you about and he <laughs> pours it into the other one. You see, I, I think a lot of us are thinking that we can hide what's in us, that God won't see it. And we say, yeah, God, see, it's all even, it's all, it's all nice and clean, but really there's stuff still inside that we're just not owning up to. And Solomon is saying, don't pretend. Don't pretend the glasses are even. Don't pretend everything's okay. If there's junk in you, own it. Admit it. God already sees it. Who are you fooling? Who are you playing games with? Just be real. The great thing is that God knows and he cares and he loves us still. That even with all the garbage inside, he sees it. He says, I care about you just like you are. I love you just like you are. And if you want to own it, I'll help you with it. But I'm not going to play games with you. I don't play games.
You can't perform for me. You can't pretend. Either be real or be honest. But don't play games. And what, what I want to do is I, I want us to be able to, to put aside the hypocrisy. I, I want us to be able to put away this false image. I want us to be able and comfortable as a community to own who we are and accept where we are without the reservation, the antagonism, or being afraid of what people are going to say or how they're going to put us down. And so what I'd like you to do with me right now is just a, a, an honest experiment from one to five, just have a line from one to five. Five being that you are as close to God as you can be. You couldn't put a piece of paper between you and God. You are just walking tight with him. Everything is good. And one is being that you're just not good at all. I'm not going to allow you to be a zero, okay? But a one is just God isn't important to you. He's not really of interest to you. You don't care to listen to him, and you just see yourself in that place where you're one. And so between this one to five, where are you? What number do you give yourself? And now the important part is not just what number do you give yourself, but which direction are you heading? In other words, where is the momentum of your life? Are you a two that's trying to get to a three? Are you a person who's wanting to get better, but you see yourself here in this place? Or maybe you're a four, but you're actually going backwards and you're heading down to being a two. And so you're, you've been in a place that's close. You have this relationship with God, but you know that you're not where you should be and you're not moving in the direction you should be. And so just kind of see where you are in this chart and which direction you're heading. And own that. And one last thing I want you to do is just kind of, if you would just imagine with me, okay, if this is where I'm at, I'm at and this is where I'm heading, where do people think I am? Just have a shadow of where people think you are. You know, maybe you're a three and you're, you're moving towards being a two, but people think you're a four. There's this shadow of being closer than you really are. And what I want to do is just allow the truth of what we've just read in Ecclesiastes to, to shine and remove the shadow so that you can really be where you are, who you are, and moving in the direction that you're moving in so that you can know and own who you are. And if you want to make the change, you know where that change needs to be made. And there's not a game that needs to be played. I don't have to try and impress anybody. This is really where I'm at. I'm going to remove the shadows, and I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to play a fool. I'm not going to make a vows or talk and talk. I want to listen to where I'm at. I want my heart to be genuine. And I want a real relationship with God. 
and I don't want to perform play games. I need to be truthful. And I pray that this would be a freeing moment wherever you're at. If you're a two but people think you're a four, it's better to own the two than to pretend to be what you're not. Let's pray. God, we all care about what people think of us. And it motivates us, it persuades us to act often in, in ways that aren't really who we are. And God, maybe we've got the, the lingo down. We know how to say all the right things. We, we use the, the buzzwords that give us an air of spirituality. But inside us, we're, we're not really as close. And we know it. But maybe it's time to own it. And God, you care about the truth. You care about truth in the inward parts. You desire to bring us out of this game playing, out of this performance-based relationship into one that's honest, one that is open. Lord, until that takes place, really, we can't move anywhere. And so I pray that this morning that took place in our hearts, that there was an illumination of who we really are and maybe who we're pretending to be. And we allowed you by your Holy Spirit to just give us understanding of what you really want. Lord, help us not to play games. And Lord, I do hope that we would all have a desire to move closer towards you. Maybe we need to let go of some things and maybe we need to get rid of this game we've been playing. Maybe we've been looking at you as if we're just buying a vacuum cleaner and we're going to try you out. And Lord, we've come to the conclusion that I, I can't play games anymore. I don't want to live this dual life anymore. I don't want to be double-minded. I, I just need to own who I am and know that you accept me right where I am. Lord, I pray that takes place here, that we move forward in the illumination that you've given us through the scriptures this morning. Thank you for your favor. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. We ask your continued guidance in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.